my very best to get this job that I so crave. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Fan Zone Debate. We got an interesting one here for you today. We got uh, two players uh, who are, are not uh, new to the league, but haven't had a ton of matches, played semi-recently, uh, and now they're they're going to go up against each other. Uh, we got Adelaide Spence going up against Joe Fairley. Uh, both, I think, having a bit of an, uh, as we were just discussing before the match started, maybe a little bit unlucky. Joe debuted against Kirk, who's the who's the champion. Uh, and he actually kind of got thrown in at the last minute uh, it, it was, it, at that point. And then he went on to play Holtzman, who, you know, just also was on a title run at the same time, who I believe also beat Spence in that same uh, title run that Holtzman was going on at the time. So uh, both these players, a little bit of an unlucky run, but I think really talented when it comes to uh, debate. Uh, we'll see what happens. We got Brian here with me today. Brian, how you doing, sir? I am doing just wonderful. Glad to be back here. Um, Joe, I know we saw just recently. He did a great job debating. Uh, Adelaide is someone who I definitely don't always agree with their uh, opinions, but they do an excellent job of debating them. That's what we're. And that's what counts here. So. That's what we're here to find yeah. out. Uh, <laughs> Kirk, you are also here. How you doing, my friend? I'm no good. Uh, excited for this match. But thinking about this today, uh, Joe and Spence, both players who have not had the success that they've wanted or that they've that they're capable of, I think so far. Um, but I think they've both been dancing around like that really solid game that they need uh, to put together to win. So um, just a matter, I, I'm excited to see who which one of them puts it all together today better and uh, pulls out the win. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go over and talk to Mr. Fairley first. Uh, Joe, welcome. Like we said, uh, you were kind of thrown into the tournament in 2020, 21, 21, 2021 tournament. Um, you were kind of thrown in there at the last minute and you were like, yeah, sure. I'll play. I'll play whoever. And little did you know, you had to play Kirk who went on the monster run that he went on. Then you got to play Holtzman, but then you got to play Mike Hanley in a very fun match. As that well. was so much fun. And uh, now you're here to play Spence. Uh, so maybe a bit of an unlucky first bit. Uh, but now I think you and Spence are pretty evenly matched. It's going to be interesting. How are you feeling going into it? Yeah, I feel good. It's been a bit, it has been a bit of a bumpy start um, to the fan zone debate. Um, I think this is sort of like the middle tier of sort of multiplex entertainment for me. Because obviously fandom I've been very, very successful in. And people know in Warzone I don't really prepare that hard and this is sort of the middle ground i could prepare harder i think there's more work i could probably do but i definitely still put more effort into the fandom trivia but i'm looking forward to this as um some good quiz stuff that even stuff that's not from strengths that sort of i think i'm strong in so i'm looking forward to but i know spence i know they'll be very strong in it too and yeah this is this, this should be close i think this will be close all right great well let's bring in spence spence welcome uh to the program <laughs> You taking on Joe now today. Uh, are you excited? Are you nervous? How are you feeling? I've realized in time between when this started in the promo, uh, this is my only league that I am above or, or like not negative in. So I'm trying to keep that going. And now I am playing uh, the video store rebates champion who knows about fucking calculus. So I'm in trouble. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you saw that. We were definitely both Googling both. <laughs> everything that went on there we had no idea but it sounded convincing 
that's all that matters at the end of the day. Uh, so we are going to get into the match. Uh, here's how this is going to work. So uh, Spence and Joe are going to debate some questions for us tonight. They drafted some categories. I gave them some questions. They're going to debate those questions before our very souls uh, at the <laughs> end of the question. Uh, they, well, I'm sorry. They're going to get one minute openings one-minute closings, and a five-minute freeform in between. And at the end of those questions, Kirk, Brian, and I will write on our handy-dandy boards who we thought won the point. Best two out of three points wins the uh, the question, and the first to win three questions uh, wins the match. So if we're all tied up after the four prep questions, we will move on to a bonus question. Uh, any questions from the players? All right, then let's get into this. All right, we are going to get right into this with the first question, which was drafted by Adelaide in the category of Oscars. The question is, what is the worst pre-1950s best picture winner? Elating. I'm so excited. Uh, so we're going to start with Spence. Spence, you got one minute to open this argument when you start talking. I want you to imagine Hollywood in 1931. Sounds like shit, don't it? And you're probably imagining, oh my God, what, is it, what does it look like? Does it look like really bad writing, horrendous racism, a love for the old West, which is a little misplaced because everyone like grew up then? Like, oh, it's so nice, but they forgot how everyone was dying and it was really boring, nothing was going on. That's Cimarron. Uh, Cimarron is a story of a family who moves to Oklahoma to get land. And while they're in there, Nothing happens. They own a family, and that's a majority of the conflict that goes on. They have a fight with some people who are fighting for the land that's never properly set up or never really understood their reasoning other than land good. And beyond that, the storytelling isn't even structured very well. Characters are introduced out of nowhere with no real reasoning, no real backstory other than, oh, introduced in the middle of this character's journey when we should have seen them at the start, seeing how it's put together. This movie is horribly just made both in editing and acting in production and writing every part of this film is poorly constructed no part of it is, is is done good overall and it's the worst best picture winner ever period beyond this question time okay uh let's move over to joe joe you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking uh there are a lot of factors that come into play when discussing the worst best picture winner it's not just a case of what is the worst movie to win Best Picture? That's not what the question is. Because it's also, what is the worst winner of the Best Picture award? And for that, we need to look at, of course, the movie itself, but also the era in which it was released uh, and the competition. Um, I think for the time, as well as on reflection, the only answer that truly fits this question and really sets the bar as the worst is 1941's How Green Was My Valley? A family drama set in a Welsh mining village, Welsh being inverted commas um the movie offers nothing to the conversation that hasn't already been said offers nothing new and that's what you want from a best picture winner something that says something new or offers something different or offers something interesting or revolutionary in terms of filmmaking how good my, my valley is none of these and i think when you look at the movie itself as well as the competition and the era and everything that encompasses it you will understand why it is the worst time okay i haven't seen either of these so Yay. Uh, Five-minute freeform when one of you starts talking. I uh, will throw this up on the screen when there's one minute remaining for you. Um, 
don't talk over each other or I will come and scream at you and make you sad. Five minutes when one of you starts talking. You can go first. I think for years you've had that sort of, you see a movie and you go, this is Oscar bait. And that's how Green is my Valley is like the worst example of this. It's set in a Welsh mining village and it's the most Hollywood Wales I've ever seen. I've been to Wales several times and it's, it's just not like that. It definitely wasn't back then. It's just, it's an American ideal and trying to set it in this sort of, at this time of this hardship and all that, but it doesn't present, that's not what's presented and that's not what you get from it. It's an American idealized version. It's the worst kind of Oscar bait you can get. But not only that, I think Cimarron also has scope, you know, stretches, I think from 1886 through to 1927, covering sort of one man and his experiences. And it's a bit of a commentary on moving with the times, which doesn't just show in the film, but I think also with the filmmaking. I, I, I think that your criticism of saying, oh, it's, it's, Criticizing what's going on at, at the current time it doesn't really apply to it. Cimarron is a movie that is that is purely living in the past. It is telling a story that honestly doesn't even exist, not even an adapted screenplay. It is an original story about a family that does not exist and has no impact on the future. And even beyond that, I think that you're underselling what How Green My Valley was about. Just because a movie is not accurate doesn't mean that it's inherently bad. A lot of the films are inaccurate and still great. This movie is just an ode to small town life and family. And I think each character and each performance in that really add to that. There's, there's, there's a sense of camaraderie in the family. And then the interaction in the small town really worked really well. This is like a precedent on the waterfront of the idea of so much, so much going on. They're literally fighting against uh, these union busters, people trying to break them down and trying to stop them from fighting for equal workplace rights, which only we're dealing, still, still, dealing with, still, still dealing with right away. Sorry. I think Cimarron is a movie that's so horrendously outdated. It's a film that's almost implicitly about racism. Characters who whose only real characteristic is how racist they are and if they're racist or not. By the end of the film, the status quo does not change. They end up just sort of living in that languid non-existence of are people not white bad? And that's most of the film. But I think with Cimarron, I think, you know, while not being anywhere near sort of today's level, I think it still speaks to the social aspect of its plot. You know, the author um, was known to be against the stealing of land from Native Americans. And even with a Hollywood adaptation, I think it still holds some of that tone, especially when you look at sort of the idealized version of 1930s. I think it still holds on to that tone, something that probably even today with the sensitivity that there is would still be criticized for being too woke even though the stereotypes i agree and i agree with you on the stereotypes of some of the characters but the underlying plot itself is still something that i think touches on that tone that the original author of the book intended plus i think you look back i think people still know Simron. i think that's why it was remade in 1960 i think that's why you have this um the how green is my valley is something that was just so forgettable and so like the Oscar bait, you know, yours was nominated for acting, directing, cinematography, and I think it won writing and art direction, whereas no one remembers how Green's Valley apart, they only know it because it beat Citizen Kane, but it's not just Citizen Kane, you look at, it was nominated against The Maltese Falcon and Suspicion as well. These are for movies that 80 years later are still held up and considered as great, and I think it's not the worst, it's not just the worst movie, it's the worst best picture winner. This did not deserve to win best picture, even you look at what it presented and its competition. I think I think comparing it saying oh movie bad because it beat a better movie is is just like a really non-starter argument. It doesn't really add anything. Doesn't really go anywhere. Like how good my valley? Just because you don't like this mean doesn't mean it doesn't have good elements. I think that the way that it's it speaks to it speaks to family. It speaks to maturity. I think the way that it deals with life is so unheard of even in modern film. I think it says so much about 
the idea of adulthood and the complications that come through life. Cimarron is really just like a one-note story. And going back to your original point about how the author was against this land-stealing argument, that's not presented in the film. This film is, it's like if you adapted a book and only adapted every five chapters. Yes, it spans like 60, 70 years, but at the end of the day, it doesn't inherit, it doesn't say that. At the end of the film, it starts with this with um, one of the kids marrying a Native American woman. It's like, okay, progression. And the mom's like, oh, I fuck, fuck you. I hate this. You're, you're dating, you're marrying a woman who is not white and she's against it. Literally, the next cut, she's receiving an award for humanitarian, like a humanitarian award for not more being racist. It's more brother. character there's development than you give it in How Great Is My Valley. It's a lot more character. There's no character development. You might not what, see what your character development. At least they change. But it's not motivated, though. It's it's, like, it's one point where there is no transition. There is no natural change. It is just, oh, person that's changed off screen. And that's bad filmmaking. How Great Is My Valley is incredible filmmaking. That script is tight and it is beautiful because you see every single member of this family over even like a relatively smaller period is still there learning life around them and they're having conflicts and they're trying to change and they do through conflict. And that is I the think, inherent best part of the story. It, it, it has scope. It, it's, you know, it, it, I think the best term for it would be, it's, it's, a, it's sweeping. I think the opening, the opening land it's rush is fantastically filmed, fantastically made. I am. Okay, uh, Joe, we're gonna start with you first. You got one minute when you start talking. Uh, Cimarron is a movie that has something to say. I think it holds up as a sort of more of a sweeping epic. I think How Green Was My Valley is a movie that fails across the board in almost all categories that make a great movie and a great best picture winner. Uh, the cinematography is good, but in no way resembles the land it's supposed to represent. You know, it offers nothing in the way of character development or acting performance. And when compared to not only the other best picture winners, but it's also its fellow nominees, um, is one that should have not should never have won the award and deserves to be buried. Cimarron not only holds up, but also has a story that was relevant then, relevant when it was made, and is relevant today. Yes, you have those stereotypes in there. That's the product of that's the product of the times, but the story itself, the underlying things, I think they still hold up. I think, although some bits are maybe glossed over because it is an adaptation of a book, you still have that character development in there. Whereas in How Grim Is Valley, you get no character development. All you get is a story that is Oscar bait and set up and adapted in a poor way, in a way that doesn't represent what it's supposed to represent. Time. Okay. Um, we're going to move over to Spence, who has one minute to close their argument when they start talking. How Great With My Valley represents a lot of films that we have nowadays. The, the ode to a memory, even that happened last year with Belfast, this idea of a, a director or writer recreating memories from their childhood and portraying it on screen in a really matured way that they couldn't exactly handle as a child. That is this film. Not only has it aged beautifully, every person in it is incredible. The writer is incredible. You're talking about how Cimarron has this grand scope. It doesn't really have that. It has the opening scene, which is big. And after that, it's a, just, it's a single town. And a single town has nothing going on other than bad people, bad characters, bad writing. Nothing is adding to the world. How Great My Valley is this beautiful memoir to a past that, that the crew and everyone is trying to recreate and live in that memory, and it's beautiful. How Cimarron says nothing, and it stands for nothing other than just a horrendously awful value. And even when you detract its morals from its overall storytelling, the storytelling itself is still not good. The screenplay is poorly structured. The acting is not well done. The directing is bad. Every part of Cimarron is poorly put together. You may not, you may think that How Great My Valley is inaccurate to Wales, but at the end of the day, it still has a full, cohesive film with a passionate and hardworking crew and cast. Okay. All right. Let's bring in the judges. All right. Oh, what are they doing? My marker. There it is. Okay. 
Okay. Um, interesting. <laughs> uh, I had to go purely based off of everything that was said because I have not seen these films. Uh, there were a lot of moments where the players said, like, well, the writing is bad. Why? Give me some examples. I didn't hear anything. Uh, there's sweeping shots of what? I don't know. Uh, like, you know, there, there was just a lot of, like, talk, but not a lot to back it up. Um, I thought Joe's jab at, like, I do think what the competition is matters in these in the context of these questions when you're looking at like what is the best or worst of a of a category I think you do have to look at the competition and say like this movie beat Citizen Kane and this and that and that does hold uh some ground to me so I think Spence just writing that off was a little rough but at the end of the day I still went with Adelaide Spence uh I thought that their closing was very strong uh, that was really where, like, they got fired up. Joe's closing was just kind of like a recap of everything that he had said, but there wasn't anything in there that really made me, like, sway to his side. I thought that Spence's closing did a really good job of um, not only, like, recapping everything, but also saying, like, that there's just everything about Cimarron is just absolutely awful, and, like, here's all of the things in that. Um, he, uh, Spence then used things from Joe's argument of like, uh, just because you don't think it's like accurate to Wales, was it Wales or whatever? Like yeah. it's still a full cohesive story, um, that like makes sense and, uh, has like emotional stuff in it, whether or not it was better than the other movies or not. So I don't know. This was, this was a weird one for me, but, um, it was kind of hard to dig through it personally, but I went with Spence, uh, Brian. Uh, yeah, I had never, never seen either of these movies either. And um, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, there were times during this debate where I wasn't even sure which movie we were talking about because they're just both telling me kind of why they all suck. So I really have no interest in seeing either one. Um, <laughs> the thing about questions like this, I think questions like this are subjective. And so it, it, in terms of interpretation, and I actually disagree with Tim, I, I kind of feel like if the question was which film least deserved to win the Oscar, that's different than which is the worst film the worst best picture winner to me means what's the worst film that happened to win best picture, but that's just interpretation. Um, as a result, I think that a lot of the time Joe Spence uh, talking about the competition that didn't really do much to sway me. Spence was able to spend more of their time talking about it. So while it was actually a very close fight, I gave the edge to Spence. Okay. And Kirk, where are you going? Or what? Um, I actually went with Joe. Um, for me, I agree with you, Tim. It was very much like, well, my movie at least has this and your movie doesn't have that. And it was back and forth. So, um, Joe's argument about it being the worst best picture winner did sway me. I think the idea of the legacy and all that was important. And with everything else, kind of a wash, that was the thing that, that, that kind of just won me over. So, um, I disagree with Brian that I do think that was important. Uh, so that's why I went that way. Okay. All right. Well, Spence wins the first point. Uh, they are up one to zero, but we are going to move on to the next question, which was drafted by Joe. Uh, it is from the category of Star Trek. And the question is, who should direct a new Star Trek movie? Specifically, someone who's never directed a Trek movie before. That was the caveat we gave. Uh, Joe, you get to open this one. You got one minute when you start talking. 
It's been six years since Star Trek last hit the big screen. A fourth movie in the Kelvin timeline is on the cards, but it's a way off. But the question of who should direct the next Star Trek movie is one that forces us to look at the franchise as a whole. What makes it is what it is? What separates it from other sci-fi movies? What has made it endure for 60 years? And who working today has a filmography that fits with those, those values? Uh, but also um, can give us something new. And I think any director can make a foray into sci-fi, but uh, which director out there has the skill set to gel with uh, Roddenberry's world? And for me, that director is Jordan Peele. Peele is a director that three movies into his career has shown that he understands sci-fi. With Get Out, he showed how sci-fi can be used to look at social racial issues. I think in Us, he showed that as well as um, how different experiences make us the people we are. And with Nope, he showed us how our understanding of the unknown leads us to sort of to risk everything based on our assumptions. I think Into Darkness was a poor remake of Wrath of Khan, and I think where Beyond succeeded was that it brought it back to its roots, and I think Peel has the ability to do that um, and convey his messages. Okay. Uh, move over to Spence, who now has one minute to open their argument when they start talking. To me, the elements of the best Star Trek films are films that are rooted in a amazing ensemble cast incredible villains, a really strong script, and a director doesn't get lost in the weeds of it, and overall just someone who knows how to coordinate tone, which I think is hard for a lot of filmmakers to do. That's why I picked Drew Goddard. I think that in his two films he's made so far, both of those have, have navigated that really well. Um, I I think Cabin in the Woods is just a way of uh, upending the horror genre in a way that a lot of modern films haven't, haven't been able to top really before or since, and I think that Batman the El Royale shows that with an incredible ensemble cast, anything is possible. That's a film that is so dense you can get lost in it very easily. I think Drew Goddard navigates that really well. And beyond that, I think that he's shown that he can work really well with genre filmmaking in terms of what he's done in TV with Daredevil and Lost. He has found a way to compel, or make incredible, compelling stories. And I think that he is able to add to the Star Trek universe where I think other directors or other writers would end up getting lost in the past. The future would be made by Drew Goddard. And I think he'd be incredible at it. Time. Okay. Hey, I know who these people are. Uh, you guys got five minutes when one of you start talking. So I think the, the issue with Goddard is, I think, why, yes, I do I agree with the ensemble stuff. I don't think there's anything in either Cabin in the Woods or um, Bad Times at the El Royale that really speaks to why he could helm a Star Trek movie. There's some stuff about why he could do a good movie that upends sci-fi. There's definitely elements of that, but I don't think there's anything about Star Trek in there. I think you just look at those three films. I think each of them show a different element of sort of Star Trek. You've got the racial and social commentary. Star Trek, for, since the beginning, has had stuff with the mirror universe, which I think speaks to us very well. And the sort of the, the sci-fi element of Nope with this sort of this this creature that we don't understand and ends up being something that um, we never thought it was because based on our assumptions, it's Encounter at Farpoint. There's so many there's episodes of The Next Generation that really speak to that. And that's what Nope says to me. And I think he's now ready to move into something like Star Trek. Well, if you're, if, you're using against, if you're using that against Drew Goddard, look what Jordan Peele started. He started as a sketch sketch comedy writer and comedian. That's not this person you expect to make get out and know within these big sci-fi horror films that's so against type. I think Drew Goddard has that in him. And again, you're, you're I don't know if we can count TV, but if we can, you're distracting his TV work, which I think is incredible handlings of genre and sci-fi and everything beyond that. But even on top of that, I think that saying like, oh, people can add to things. I think Jordan Peele is, Jordan Peele is a fan first and foremost, which sounds good. I think, I think he's going to get lost in it. I think that he's actually, um, I looked at this. The big spoilers. The big alien villain in Nope is actually inspired by the main alien villain in the opening scene or in the first episode of Star Trek: Next Generation. He would likely return to TNG. 
I think it's overall a problem because Peel, I think, is a, is a director who, as we've seen, that's, that's where I disagree. You see, he's already this, this, this doesn't have to be Kelvin Simon, it doesn't have to be necessarily, it can be something new, but also we know about his love of working with Daniel Kaluuya. I think with Daniel Kaluuya, we could have our next Benjamin Sisko, but that's a debate for another time. But I, I think. I, I love Cabin in the Woods, and I thought Bad Time was a seriously underrated movie, but nothing about those movies tells me about Star Trek. I think Peel has shown a love for sci-fi and social commentary, not just in his directing, but his producing credits like uh, Candyman and The Twilight Zone being perfect examples. He has this love for sort of sweeping sci-fi, but also his movies show that he can... Because it's not just about Star Trek, it's about bringing Star Trek, I think, back to its roots. That's where Beyond succeeded against Star Trek Into Darkness. Whereas, I, and I think bringing it back to his roots with this sort of the social commentary and the messaging, that's what Star Trek was about. Nope, at its core is about sort of about the mistreatment of, of animals. That's that's the voyage home. I, I think you're I think you're underselling what what Goddard was able to do with Captain of the Woods of the idea of deconstruction. I think Star Trek is a is a franchise right for deconstruction. I think one of the best films, even if, if we were talking about like, oh, what is El, what Batman El Royale do? I think that Undiscovered Country would work great under Goddard. This this tight political thriller. I think that he would be incredible for. I think Peel is someone who he sounds great, but I think the biggest danger of getting a director like him who has made such consistently great films and is so lauded by audiences and studios is that he will be a he will the studios will not be able to tell him no. And the biggest danger of, of never telling someone no is dense. Fans are going to create a dense product. And even though if you look at the reason that Star Wars is as beloved as it is, is not because George Lucas. When George Lucas worked on his own, he destroyed it with the prequels. You needed an editor and a student to tell him, hey, your blue milk shit is not going to work and edited it down. I think that Jordan Peele with Star Trek would create the Star Wars prequels where it is so obsessed with itself and the density. And again, Peele is someone who has said on the record that he loves TNG. And if he, if he made a Star Trek film, it would probably be a readaptation re of TNG, like how Kelvin's readaptation re of, of the original series. And he would get lost in TNG is dense. Look at the films. When the, when the filmmakers of TNG got lost in the weeds and got the densest of it and made bad films like, like Nemesis and Insurrection. We don't want that. We want the new future. I think Goddard would, would be able to, to to avow himself to that. But I think I think what you're saying is I think I think even Jordan Peele has shown in these movies that he's made is that he can be he has this ability to sort of breed sort of subtlety and, and restraint as well. You know, these are great sci-fi movies, but they're they're patient. They're very patient yeah. movies in their build. He can work with an ensemble. I think Get Out shows he can work with an ensemble and create memorable and epic villains. And I think everything that he's shown in his it not only shows that he can make epic sci-fi that's what's been shown but it's also every single elements in every single movie he's made and everything he has produced that has that speaks to star trek as a whole i think drew goddard is has made two great movies but there's nothing in them that for me speaks to star trek i think cabin in the woods is a great deconstruction of that but nothing in that says that he could do that was Star Trek. I don't think Star Trek needs deconstructing. I think it needs to be brought back to its roots and i think his root those roots are embedded in what Jordan Peele has already made. And I think, yes, there's a good ensemble cast, but it's not a sci-fi movie with an ensemble cast. I think the biggest issue that you're sort of circling around is size of film. And I, I don't I don't think Peele's able to do that. I think that you're underselling what Goddard's able to do with the, with the dense narrative universe of Captain in the Woods. I think that Peele's dentist would be a problem in the overall final product. Okay. All right, Spence, you're going to close first. You got one minute when you start talking. 
I was going to add to this earlier. I think the denseness of us towards the ending was, was, was overall was going to detract from Peel's overall final product. Where I think that Goddard is someone who's able to understand denseness. I think I think that both of his films have been really rich and well thought out, while also having incredible universes within them. I think Hemsworth was a great was a great villain and added that to Attempt the El Royale. And I think Captain of the Woods is a film that overall I think that the universe that it creates is so inherently interesting. I don't. I'm not going to deny that, deny that Peel made three great films, but I think overall that both his name, what I think would scare studios and Captain cause them was cause him to make an unfair fettered and uninterrupted final project, which would, which would be overall bad. And he is married to his, to his love for the, for the next generation, which I think would overall detract from what the possibilities of the future of Star Trek is. Right now we see on TV, Brave New Worlds is expanding the universe of Star Trek to be possibly the best it's ever been. I don't think Peel is going to be able to do that. I think that he is someone who, as we've seen in Nope and in Us, his love for the past. And I think his love for the past is going to be ultimately, ultimately what draws him back. He is going to take, take, take Star Trek in the direction of George Lucas in, in the prequel secret trilogy. I think is overall a problem. Goddard is someone who I think has so many incredible new ideas to offer to the universe. Time. Don't attack the flag. All right, Joe, you get to close. One minute when you start talking. I think while Goddard, as a producer, has made some great sci-fi, um, had been involved in the making of some great sci-fi like uh, The Martian, Lost, 10 Cloverfield Lane, but you also have the Cloverfield Paradox in there. So, But as a director, I think he works better with either an interesting take on something that has been sort of done to death, but that didn't have much to say, or smaller, more grounded ensemble piece. Trek is the opposite of this. It's social commentary mixed with ensemble and epic visuals. And after just three movies, Peel has distanced himself from being just another sci-fi director and has cemented himself as someone with great ideas and the technical ability to tell them in a compelling way to an audience. You can find pieces in all of his films that you can connect back to Star Trek. Peel is not just a great fit for Star Trek. Star Trek is a great fit for Peel. I think you look at the transition from us to Nope, it shows that he can learn from criticism and it's and accept that feedback i think bringing him into star trek he's still going to be someone who's being brought in from the outside and there's a if a person like you say has the love for that franchise i think it's someone who someone who's willing to listen willing to accept feedback and criticism and his love for the franchise will show and his directorial history shows shows strike it from the record uh okay we'll bring in the judges What a time to be alive. I'm not sure Kirk is qualified to judge this. He has no interest in Star Trek. (laughs) That makes him better to judge, I think. (laughs) All right, Kirk, you get to go first. Okay. Um, This is a good fight. And it's a hard one, though, because they both came at it from kind of different angles. Mm. Um, So it's kind of what, you know, vision you were more interested in. Um, ultimately I did go with Joe though. Sorry, Spence. Uh, but, uh, I think the the thing I really like Joe was doing is Joe was able to say, you know, take things from Jordan pill movies and make them applicable. You know, he's like, well, this isn't, this is what uh, us is about. It's this and, you know, Star Trek. And this is, you know, this was in Nope and this, this, that and Star Trek. So I think that was really something that really grabbed me, just his understanding of that world. And I agree with Joe. I think it's about, you know, the best movies are the ones that more go back to the roots. Um, So I think that's the way. And also I liked how he kind of shot back, um, you know, with, uh, you know, Spence's big argument was that, um, you know, he's not going to hear no and he'll just, it'll be too bloated. And, um, you know, Joe talked about how he took the, you know, criticism from uh, us to Nope. So, um, and also I want to see the DS9 movie with Daniel Kaluuya now. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go with Joe on that one. Um, I also went with Joe. Um, I thought that Spence did a good job. Um, but I, I, and I want to be clear. I actually, like, hate 
the idea of Jordan Peele doing a Star Trek movie. Like, I don't like, like, I did not like that choice at all when Joe submitted it, but he convinced me for the sake of the argument. Um, I thought he did a really good job of uh, talking about how um, Jordan Peele would be able to uh, take like the criticism and everything like you were talking about Kirk. And then also at one point he mentioned the Spence took a shot of saying like, Oh, the, the studio, like it would be too bloated too like whatever, like it would just be too drawn out or whatever. And Joe made a really good point of being like all three of his films are super patient films that like, like star Trek can be like slow and interesting at the same time. And I thought that was a really good point. Uh, so I also went with Joe, uh, Brian, uh, your focus account, where would you have gone and why? Well, I actually agree with Spent. I would much rather see a Drew Goddard, uh, Star yeah. Trek. I'd, I'd be very excited to see a Drew Goddard Star Trek. Um, and I object to Joe's criticism of into darkness, which I really enjoy. Um, however, same as I said, in my opening, this is not who I agree with. It's who debates their points better. And I actually went with Joe as well. Um, because I think he actually won it a large part in his opening statement uh, when he talks about um, how um, Jordan Peele kind of gets sci-fi and would be able to use the use the genre, use the form to to do what Star Trek was originally intended to do, which is make these commentaries on social and racial issues, things like that. So. All right. Uh, so we are all tied up one to one. Let's get into the next question, which was drafted by Spence uh, in the category of YA. The question is, which character in the Hunger Games series died in the worst way? Uh, so, Spence, you get to kick this one off. You got one minute when you start talking. I think there are some kinds of pain which are imaginable. There are ways that you just, you hear someone die, it's like, how, how does that happen? How does that work? And I think the idea of being torn limb from limb and your body dismembered every part of you basically being ripped off by raw fingers seems impossible and yet somehow people do it i'm picking president snow from uh uh mocking part two i think that the way that he dies is just something you talk about to sit with and sort of question like how does this happen how does this work uh i don't understand fully how humans can do that the the feralness the the anger the desire for murder that would drive someone to literally ripping someone off a podium and tearing every part of their body off of their body. That seems physically impossible, yet rage provides it. The hatred that he, that he gave people of the Capitol and people of Pan Am is imaginable. And I think that sort of living in that wonder of how does this happen is much worse than a very definitive, this is what happened and this person died. Time. Okay. We're going to move over to Joe, who has one minute to open his argument when he starts talking. Just taking a look from the outside, I think Hunger Games is, is a brutal franchise. Kids aged 12 to 18 forced to compete against and kill each other until only one remains. The nature of the games themselves is enough so that any death inside that arena is inherently the worst. But I think Glimmer's death in the first Hunger Games is particularly harrowing. Um, we know that she's a career tribute, uh, someone who has trained her whole life to represent her district. Killing is all she knows. Forced into a packed with people she will eventually have to turn on and then in these brief moments where she gets peace where she sleeps she's sleeping inside the arena she is woken and a, she's woken by being attacked by these genetically engineered wasps that sting her so much 
and so often that her own body is unrecognizable. Uh, Caesar Flickerman describes uh, the effect of tracker jack stings as searing pain, powerful hallucinations, followed by eventual death. It's not just the death itself, it's the things that surround it. If you have to look at how Glimmer got hit, it's horrible. All right, Glimmer versus Mr. Snow. Uh, five minutes when one of you starts walking. I think the biggest thing against Glimmer's death is that it, at least it was quick. Yes, it was painful. Yes, everything that comes with Dracula Dracula Venom is still there. But it took her like a minute to die. Like it's pretty quick. Snow's death is inconceivable. The the, the amount of blood loss, the amount of organs that need, to be, that need to fail, for someone to die of that could take half an hour, an hour. You don't know how long he was suffering through that pain. The pain Glimmer had, yes, was a lot, but it was in such a short, short amount of time. It was over and done quick. I think a quick death is better than a long and drawn out one. I think Snow isn't necessarily the worst. I think it's kind of earned. I think you look at look at Snow throughout the series. You think you've got this cold, calculating, willing to sacrifice 23 children every year to maintain power, finally brought to an end by the very people whose families he was willing to sacrifice. I don't think it's necessarily the worst way. It might have been, it might have been, it was a horrible way, but I don't think necessarily for him, it's it, like in the scope of the series, in what the series presents us, I don't think it's the worst way. I think Glimmer, like every other contestant in the games, is a victim. You know, just trying to survive in a world made by Snow and others like him. Snow's death is, you know, it's, it's never really shown. It's mobbed by a crown. I think the rest is sort of left up to your imagination a little bit, whereas Glimmer's is fully shown. And it's that horrificness. It's not just look what you see on screen. It's when you actually take a step back and look at what the life of Glimmer must have been just by hearing that she's a career. She's trained her whole life to kill. And then you look at what the games are and what they represent. I think that whole thing, the whole, the step-by-step -step approach to get to that death in the first place makes that death the worst. We're, we're, we're fundamentally coming at this from different directions. I think even in your argument, you're still coming at from, you still have an incorrect answer. Like, yes. Oh, she quite, she trained her whole life to fucking die. Like, yeah, your life sucks, but that's not, that's not going to change how you die. She's a one in 24 chance of winning the games with two, with three other people who are the, the favorite to win. I'm sorry. That's, that's also, I don't think that's, I think that misunderstands the argument that you're trying to make. At the end of the day, I think there are other worse ways to die within the overall franchise. And honestly, I think they're all come from my movie. Because so I think that Phoenix's death, it sucks that he was mauled to death and then blown up. That fucking sucks. And also in terms of like the, narr the, the narrative structure, Finnick had no reason to die. He could have escaped out of there. That's narratively, that's poorly put together. Primrose, oh, she was bombed to make someone look like a villain. Didn't need that. And then she fucking died for no reason. You're saying it's, I think that if you're talking about, oh, it's, oh, the pain of death, mine is still worse. And you're saying, oh, the, the tragedy of the character or, or how it was used in the storytelling. You still pick the worst option. I think there are, better, there are other characters which benefit your argument more rather than two-pronged attack, which isn't really focusing on one or the other. But I think you speak against your own argument to that point because you said, you know, at least it was quick. But these, these, the ones you've just described were even quicker. I think the difference is we know, we don't, we know what it's, we don't know what it's like. But it's a little bit more of a told experience what it's like to be just stabbed or electrocuted like some of the people in the games are. But these tragedies are specifically described by a season about what they are. This searing pain, and you can see by the amount of the swelling and how dismembered, how disfigured her body is at the end of it, how many times she must have been stung. And it, the thing is, eventual death. That's what Caesar Fickman said, it's eventual death. It's still searing pain. You see um, Katniss get stung several times and she comes out of it okay in the end. But the fact that, that Glimmer was in this state and it took her to die, it, it tells you exactly how many times and how often it must have taken her to be stung. Whereas I think, you know, if she, I think you have to look at everything that's presented. I'm not saying her character is, you know, ever shown to be um, more than just a creature. You only need to scratch at the surface and listen to what's being said in the dialogue that she is a victim and did not deserve what she got. And that makes it the worst. Snow Snow deserved it. And it kind of softens it a little bit for, for us as an audience seeing it. But I think it's not the worst. I think 
you look at Glimmer as a character, if she even shows an ounce of weakness or sympathy in that arena, she dies. Her own clip will turn on her. Everything about that makes it the worst. I don't, think, I don't think your desire for character empathy really empowers your argument, though. Because at the end of the day, these people died, and my 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 love for these people isn't going to like influence how I feel about them actual dying. The actual pain of death, I think, is, is the it's like the base of this argument. And then what you're saying is like, oh, we saw her die. We saw Katniss go through smaller effects of this. I think that the pain of the unknown is far worse than the pain of the shown. The fact that we're still able to see the fucking brutal death of Glimmer is fine we got through it we saw oh this is the worst that can happen they did not let us see snow's death because we know how fucked up and terrifying and painful that has to be and again i think that you using glimmer as like oh the character feel for it she still went in she's still like oh i'm so glad to murder these 20 other people hopefully one of the four of us actually wins this i think it's unmotivated i think that, that i think that using that as the base of your argument is so wholly distracted from the overall basis of this of i think the snow's death is awful to sit with and I, and I don't think using character as the basis is something that really really propels your overall final product of what the answer is that is an unfair spin i think i think it just speaks to part of it i still you know you still have to you still hear from caesar exactly what this person is going through and like you said you say snows is the worst but i think like with what you're saying you're putting your own spin on it like it's not shown it's not really described but it, you are it's he's he disappears under that mob but the rest of it isn't really shown it's not really described and i think you're it's your own imagination that sort of does that with um, Glimmer. We understand exactly what she went through and that makes it worse. All right, Joe, you are going to get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. I think a worse or more brutal death is not just one that is savage and violent. I think which both of these are. It's also harsh in its nature. And when you examine these deaths, you have to ask yourself whether Glimmer and Snow deserved to die in the way they did. And, Snow put hundreds, if not thousands, of families through untold pain every year just to hold on to his own power, finally brought to an end by the very people he deemed dispensable. Yes, it's violent, but it's a culmination of years of evil, unnecessary violence he himself instilled in those people. Glimmer is nothing more than a victim, a victim of the situation, a victim of a world where she had no voice, and, and ultimately, a victim of Snow. And what it makes, and what makes it worse, is that she was just one of many, and there was nothing um, more. There was no more thought about it once it was done. That makes it worse is that it's part of this world, and it just happened. Snow's is left more to your imagination, whereas Glimmer's is fully described by Caesar the exactly what Glimmer would have gone through. Whereas you're you're left to imagine Snow's. It's, that doesn't make it the worst because we don't know exactly what it was, but we know what Glimmer's was. Okay, uh, we're gonna move over to Spence, who has one minute when they start talking. The reason we're impacted by horror so much is the fear of the unknown. A fear and the lack of knowing is truly what sits with you and terrifies you. And I think that's what that's what Snow's death does. I think that fundamentally not showing it makes it makes it scary, makes it worse. We have no idea how bad this could have been. The, the exact description by Caesar, by everyone in the game, knowing how Glimmer died, honestly undermines it a little bit. And again, I think your, your character motivation is taking away from your overall argument. The, the exact question is. What character died in the worst way? I don't think that overall, oh, she like she did or did not deserve it, is not overall. Even if, if you're doing that, I think they're better characters that, that fundamentally attack that better. I think that Finnick and Prim are fully undeserved and unfortunate deaths, which I think are better answers to this question with your prompt in mind. I think the Snow's death is overall still a hard one to and we're, and we're undermining everything else going on within him. I think that you are underselling overall the pain that can happen with 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 snow's body how every single limb every single piece of flesh and blood and meat and organ has to be removed that is horrifying uh glimmer died in like a minute snows took a long time i think time is a big factor here all right we'll bring in the judges 
Can I get the question one more time, Tim, officially? Yeah, sure. Let me pull that up for you there, Kirk. The official wording of the question was... Why is my thing not loading? Okay, here it is. The official wording of the question was, which character in the Hunger Games series died in the worst way? All right, thank you. Okay, uh, Brian, you're kicking this one off. Uh, this is actually an easy one for me. I voted for Joe. Um, I think mainly because, as Joe pointed out in his argument, um, but I was really thinking from the beginning, was that uh, it's, it's who dies in the worst way. We don't know for sure how Snow died. And even Spence kept saying, you know, oh, it's the, it's, it's the unknown. And we don't know. We have no idea what happened. And, and a lot of it's left to your imagination and things like that. And it's, yes, Spence's interpretation of that was vicious and awful. But we don't know that whereas whereas with with uh, joe's pick we know what happened and so we can at least have something to judge uh kirk okay uh based on the question and my understanding of it i'm throwing out all, all the stuff about the characters and who deserve to die how and all that that's not the window for me um i am going to go with spence because i agree with brian in that the unknown thing was a little flimsy, uh, but I don't think Joe laid enough hard to. I think uh, <clears throat> uh, Spence made a lot of assumptions about what happened underneath that mob, and you know about like organs being pulled out and bleeding to death and all that. How long it's going to take? And Joe let him have it. Joe didn't fight back. I'd say it's much more likely that he died very quickly under there than it took a long time. Um, but Joe kind of conceded uh spence's interpretation i know he said he left it's left to the imagination but i don't think he hit it hard enough so uh based on that and like i said throwing out all the character motivation stuff i gotta go with spence uh, i also threw out all the character motivation stuff that that stuff didn't really like matter to me whatsoever because i agree with spence's point of like if that was the case then uh, Prim should have been the answer. Uh, when Cody and Kirk and I were talking about this off call, that was one of the one of the first things one of us said. But uh, yeah, I, I went with Joe, and I do think that I thought that Joe did kind of handle the like leaving it up to the imagination thing uh, in the only way he could. Like, I didn't need much more hitting hard from it because. It was a very plain fact of like Spence was like, we don't even see it. We don't even know what happens. And Joe's like, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. And we know exactly what happened with the tracker jackers. Here's exactly what Caesar said. And that worked for me. Um, I thought that like, again, if, if this was an R rated movie and we had seen what Spence was describing, that's one thing, but um, when Joe brought up, because I was on with Spence, honestly, most of the time when they were talking about all this, like, rip limb from limb, because that's how I've always imagined it, too. But then when Joe was like, they don't even tell you exactly what happened. I'm like, shit, he's right. Like, they don't really. So uh, a lot of the fight was thrown out, like Kirk said, because of that. But at the end of the day, I still went with Joe. I thought that it just... Going between those two, he was able to explain why his death was worse. So 
Uh, Joe wins the point. He is up two to one. So Spence does need to hit this one in order to. So none him. of you, none of you feel sorry for Glimmer then. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> no, I don't. Honestly. <laughs> oh no, they're all terrible people. Yeah, I know. I just I tried a different thing. <laughs> um, but we are going to move on to the final question. So Spence needs to hit this one in order to stay in it. Um, this was drafted by Joe. It is in the category of crime, and the question is. Which crime film set in Britain has the best performance? Uh, so, Joe, you get to kick this one off. You got one minute when you start talking. I think British crime films have always given us interesting characters. I think from those based on real people to those invented by the writer. But I think what makes these characters really stand out is a truly great performance, or in this case, performances, uh, which, which I think Tom Hardy does in Legend by portraying both Ronnie and Reggie Cray. I think it's not only mesmerizing and memorable, I think it's also something that takes the film to a completely new level. The film Legend itself is a good film, um, and it really is Tom Hardy that makes it more than that. He is able to create two distinct characters uh, and give two completely different performances. Uh, taking on any lead role um, can be daunting for an actor, um, but I think to take on two in the same movie and be remembered for it, doing it successfully, I think it speaks to the level of his performance. I think he enables, he's very, he's a london boy you know the crazy notorious figures in london and i think he knows the stories he knows the legends um and i think it's more than just the performance it's the pressure and i think that's what makes it even more of a great performance time okay uh we're gonna move over to spence who has one minute to open their argument when they start talking i think there's something to be said about playing a dynamic character a character who truly undergoes changes and it's not oh thing has happened so now it's changed it's someone who has goes from point a to point z you could not be more different as a person and i think overall i think that is done best by Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange. i think there is such a hard level of craft you have to overcome as an actor to play something like a true sociopath a psychopath who has no empathy for humanity and has no concept of what it means to care for someone and every step of the journey you truly feel how he changes and who he is overall as a person changing i think change is so hard as an actor to truly convey in a single character performance to the end of the film where it's has he changed the qu the question of oh you've seen so much you've seen him change so much and the one act in the one act of breaking his brain and re-breaking it is he the same person and he plays that subtlety so well of every point in the journey doesn't amount to this overall final person and it's not oh i don't know because it's it's, it's a vague performance it is exact it is an exact confusion which is so compelling and impossible to pull off time all right, legend, Clockwork Orange, five-minute free form, and one of you starts talking. I think that Hardy gives half of a good performance. I think that, I don't say good, not even great. I think that Reginald is fine. I think that he plays a very safe, very typical mob boss that is, like, on the left side of Scorsese, not even trying, like a, like a discount Scorsese. Ron is an actively bad performance. I think that he is at broad strokes, no subtlety, very just big, brash, tough psychopath. And I think that is wholly uncompelling and ununique of an overall performance. I think it brings down his other one as well. I think what you're, I think the thing you have to understand is that the, the, the Cray twins are real people. And I think um, Hardy coming from a background, the hard, very harsh um, life of crime background that Hardy came from, I think he knows these stories. He knows who these people are. Um, very notorious in, in London. I think that's 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 pressure as well. And I think to give that performance, I think I wouldn't say either of them are bad performances. I wouldn't say it's even half a performance. I think 
I think it's not just the the fact that he he has he's able to show this this vulnerability, um, this sort of the sort of the the, the confidence of of Reginald being um, top of the crime family, and you've got but then you've also got Ronnie who is battling with um, this battle with his sort of sexuality and his mental health at the same time. I think he conveys that vulnerability really well. I think he shows it when he first meets Francis, um, Reginald's girlfriend. I think he shows a really sort of a sort of, sort of a sweet side, but I think but also you've got Ronnie and Reggie's fight in the bar, which I think both shows the sort of opposing natures of themselves. I think Malcolm McDowell gets a great performance, but I think the, the issue with it is it's full of interest, but there's nothing sort of unique about it. And yes, the, the sort of, you see the sort of the pain of suffering, but when you learn that that's not actually a performance, you know, Malcolm McDowell said himself that a lot of the, the suffering that Alex DeLarge experiences uh, was real. He felt that suffering for real. That's not a performance. That's just suffering. But I think what, Tom Hardy is able to do is to, to do two contrasting performances, blend them against each other, and make you. And when you're watching the film, you forget that you are watching someone who's not actually acting against anybody because he's acting against himself. This is more than one takes splice together, and I think each time you, it's believable that he is there acting against himself. I that's that's I don't I don't believe that argument at all. I think that's that's the thing that Megan Fox deserves an Oscar for being in Transformers because she's looking at a tennis ball and crying. That is that is a bad perspective. I don't think that, that works at all because every person who's acting in front of a green screen is therefore the greatest actor of all time. I think that Tom Hardy is just having a character interact with a blank space and that's not really motivating anything. I think I think that it's dedication to the reality of who the real real person is doesn't really motivate a better performance. Movies like Braveheart Amadeus aren't wholly accurate. They're actually pretty inaccurate. And you know what? It's still great. They still find ways to add layers to characters that we didn't know existed because they didn't. The, the names are there and they don't need to be motivated by reality because the performance there is still amazing. We're talking about overall performance, not even just quality in, in comparison to real life. In real life, maybe they're like that, but that doesn't mean that they're a better performance. Reginald is fine. The performance is un it's the difference in performance isn't even that large. It is mostly denoted by the script. I think if you remove the script and just and told Tom Hardy, hey, I need you to say this sentence in both these characters' affectations, whatever, it's not a very big difference. Physically, he plays them the same. There's a vocal difference between Reginald and Ron. It's very it's, it's a small difference. I think overall the performances are too similar to be called great. It is mediocre at best. And overall I think that it's on that I, think, I don't think that it's driven by anything deeper. I think I think Malcolm Dallas is working with so much. Yes, he might not be going through real pain, but I still, I still think he's able to convey it. I think the people can just be like, oh, I hurt. And you're like, oh, what is it? McDowell truly shows you an indescribable pain. It's not even just physical. It's emotional. The idea it's of not, taking it's what not, you... It's not a performance. It's real. And I think the difference, you look at, you say acting against green screen, and when an Oscar, when people are acting against the green screen, they're coming back as the same character. But where Tom Hardy's doing, he's going from one character and then he's going to do another scene. He's going to do it as a completely different character. I think that transition, that being able to create two different characters, you've got one that sort of has that, that confidence and cocksureness and struggling with the behavior of his own brother. And then you've got Ronnie, who himself is, is suffering, but he also has this really unhinged nature, that coming into the pub and demanding a shootout and walking out, storming out and coming straight back in. You can see in his eyes that sort of unhingedness. And you could, but then you turn to Reggie and you see that a completely different character under the eyes it's not just what they're saying or how they're acting it's the performance behind the eyes of tom hardy i think is phenomenal because there are two different sets of eyes for those characters as weird as that sounds but that is so untrue because ronnie literally like in the scene that you're describing he's just oh I'm, i want to kill people and then i want to kill people again there is no difference and you, you described earlier how it's like oh i don't know if i'm struggling with my sexuality or not no it's not the first time the second time we see him in a scene it's like oh hey this is my boyfriend taron edgerton and that's it he's immediately comfortable i think that this is this dynamic range that you speak of is non-existent it truly does not exist in the overall film they start and end the film in the exact same place i think mcdowell is someone who was so dynamic and we were talking about oh he's showing real pain 
what, what are you showing you is not physical pain. He's showing you emotional. His, his most beloved thing will work away from that. It's so hard to show. His physical pain is not the thing that's being acted. Time. Okay. Uh, we're going to start with Joe for the closings. Joe, you have one minute to close your argument. In Legend, I think Hardy manages to create two very different characters and plays them in such a way that it all feels natural. We know he isn't talking to himself, but each time Ronnie and Reggie are on screen together, it feels like they really were there together. I think the characters are true to their real life counterparts, but feel like people rather than impressions. Hardy is able to cope with the pressure of the role and exude the correct amount of confidence and vulnerability throughout. While Alex Delage is a fascinatingly written character, the performance itself is marred by McDowell's own admission that a lot of that really harrowing, or the real harrowing parts, the bit that really go, wow, what a performance. We're not performance at all, but they were, they were genuine. They were, they were, he was really suffering. Um, therefore, the only real performance are the moments of sort of, when he has that moment of gleeful, those moments of gleefulness when he's taking part in the ultraviolence. And while in, they are intriguing, they're not enough to provide a well-rounded enough performance that be, can be considered the best. There have been plenty of characters that have been shown to show gleefulness in the evilness they are doing. But with Tom Hardy, you get confidence and you get vulnerability. You get two different characters who do show growth, do different change, and it's all in the eyes. Time. Okay, uh, we're gonna move over to Spence. Uh, or no, we should have gone to. Yeah, I, was, I, I didn't know if I could say anything. That's my bad. I'm sorry, Joe. We should have gone to you last, but it, it's that's my bad. I yeah. fucked that up. But uh, we're gonna have to move on. Sorry, uh, Spence. You are gonna get to close now. One minute when you start talking. I think the difference in performance that you're lauding is one purely motivated by the script. I don't think the acting is actually very different. Physically, they, they play very the same. Facially, it plays it very the same. The difference is largely a vocal one, which is anyone can do. We all we all do this. We all do this. It's just we all we all do vocal differences. Is it motivated by the script? Is not really is is not motivating his performance. I think overall, McDowell's actual performance is so singularly him. I think every other performance in that film is good, not great. McDowell shines. McDowell knows exactly what is needed from him. You distract him about physical pain. I think emotional pain is the thing that's conveying that even then that really works. But I think overall, the idea of having to go through everything, this true range of the top to the bottom to the top of just true unhingedness and how we fully understand every moment of that journey is truly incredible. I think Legend overall is from the top that's not just really have that. It's Reginald who has some struggles, but overall doesn't really change as a person. And Ron never changes. I think that your idea of a dynamic character and it being shown through Tom Hardy is not there. I think Malcolm McDowell is giving one of the greatest performances of all time. It is in his analysis of pain, of trauma, of mental health, and everything works. Okay. Uh, we're going to bring in the judges. All right. Um, so I won't drag it out much. I thought this was really good. Um, both came at this from different points of view. I did go with Spence. I thought that the argument about um, it being natural or, or like real emotions and stuff uh, from Malcolm McDowell, that didn't really work for me. Like if it's on the screen and it was – he was being filmed. It's it's part of the performance to me. Like I, like if you know, like um, Mark Hamill, you get a better performance out of Mark Hamill because he's afraid of the Darth Vader costume. You're getting a better performance out of him. Like that happens when you're making movies. Um, I feel like if you're making good movies and you have good performers, that's part of it. Um, so that didn't really work for me. And I thought Spence did a really good job of explaining why Malcolm McDowell's performance is fantastic and why um, Tom Hardy's doesn't totally work for the huge amount of work that he's given in legend. So Brian, where are you going? 
I thought they both did an excellent job of supporting their own uh, picks, and I, I thought they did okay uh, attacking the other person's. Um, however, what tipped for me uh, in in favor of Joe uh, was I think that at Spence a lot of his argument kind of contradicted himself. Uh, themselves, they, they start out talking about how uh, one performance of Tom Hardy was good, but the other one was bad, and dragged the other one down. Then later on, it was oh, they're too similar. There's barely any difference. So I thought it kind of contradicted himself, and that kind of hurt the uh, attacks. Okay, and Kirk, are we going to a bonus question or are we done? This was a tough one. Um, I was really close. Um, I went um, I went with Spence because I thought that Spence did a um, – I think uh, as far as like selling their own performance, I think they were equal. I think um, Spence did a little bit better job of uh, picking apart Joe's uh, performance. And I know Joe had the quote from Malcolm McDowell, but out of context, that was hard to interpret. And I think that uh, Spence did enough to negate that. And um, I think he just sold and, it, you know, his offense and de- his, uh, offense was equal. His defense was stronger. So their defense was stronger. So uh, I'm going with Spence and we are going to the bonus round. All right. So here's how the bonus round is going to work. I have a question for you guys that I've randomized. I'm going to say the question. I'm then going to repeat the question. Once I've said the question twice, you can answer it. Whoever goes first or whoever answers first will be going first. Uh, as soon as you have an answer, please say it. Uh, you'll have 45 seconds. The second player will then have 45 seconds. Then we'll go back to the first for 30 and then the second for 30. So each will have a 45 and a 30. You can use your time however you'd like. Uh, are there any questions about how this is going to work? All right. So the world of fan zone that was randomized was the war zone side of things. And the category that was randomized was comedy. And your question is, which 21st century comedy would be the best to watch on a first date? Again, which 21st century comedy would be the best to watch on a first date? Mean Girls. Okay. Juno. Okay. Mean Girls versus Juno. I'm going to stay on screen, but I'm going to take the other judges off. Uh, Spence, you are going to go first on this. So you have 45 seconds to start whenever you are ready. I think for first thing, you want to have a pretty safe film, a film that everyone knows, everyone really likes. I think that Mean Girls is, is a very safe option, which I think works for a lot of people. I don't know a single person who actually, just, who actually dislikes Mean Girls, especially in my age bracket. I think that's a film that I think plays well to all audiences. I think it's a film that people have seen enough that they're like, oh, yeah, I enjoy it. I think showing someone a film for the first time, maybe a film like Juno, which I might have missed when 2007 when they came out, or even just now, maybe, maybe it's a little bit outdated or past time. I think that showing them a brand new film is not going to play as well, especially because the first day, you want to talk to someone. You want to get to know someone. I think Juno is something that you, that you don't want to talk through and, and you, if you want to pay attention to it it's going to attract, detract overall honestly be a bad date like if you want a good date you want someone who you can enjoy spending your time with and i think juno isn't going to inform you about the person beyond the bell. i think the mean girl is also just inherently better film it's funnier it's better written and i think the characters are better and more engaging time okay joe 45 seconds when you're ready 
think Juno is a great film for a first date. I think it's um, it's exploration of sort of relationships and all that. I think it's a really interesting film to sort of try. But also, there's not it's not too heavy. So also, you, it, it is full of laughs. I think Mean Girls is a good choice, but I also think the issue with it is it's so well seen, or so well quotable that you can sort of zone out. I think Juno is an interesting film just because of its perspective and also the fact that it was so uh, sort of well regarded, even in sort of the Oscar consideration. I think it's a really sort of like entertaining film to watch i think you get something i think you you get more out of it i think you get the sort of, there's more, sort of more interesting stuff with the characters i think there's more development around there and i think you can just sort of gain more from that and i think for a first day i think it's a really good idea to sort of see it sort of allows you to see where you are as a person by how you relate to the characters okay uh spence 30 seconds I think talking about development actually overall detracts from your argument. I think for a first date, you want to be, you want to be able to talk to someone, you want to get to know someone. I think on a first date, you don't want to just be like zone in, pay attention to a film, but I think you're not going to be able to really connect to you as a person versus connected to a film. I think connected to a film is not for a first date, probably for like a fourth or fifth date. I think for a first date, you want something like you are safe, you are, you are more familiar with. But yeah, you can say, oh hey, it's a good time. And I think you're talking about like overall quality. People still love Mean Girls. People still love Juno. I don't think quality is, is a big comparison. I think Oscars actually take away from overall arguments. It's really anything. I think Mean Girls is a film that I think plays better to an audience, whereas Juno is more for a singular person. And for a date, you have an audience. Time. All right, Joe, 30 seconds. I think Juno as a whole works. So I think there's, there's, it has more to say. It is a little bit more deeper. And seeing how another person reacts to that, I think it's important for a first date because you are getting to know this person. And I think seeing how they react to the certain situations within the movie, um, such as the, the way sort of Jason Bateman's character reacts and all that sort of stuff, and how Juno sort of deals with it, and also the development of that relationship, I think it's important to watch that. Whereas I think Mean Girls is more about background film that you can talk and get to know the other person while it's on. I think Juno itself, you can speak and learn a little bit more about who that person is from how they react to certain scenes and certain characters and how they relate to certain characters within that movie. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Brian's like ready to go, and I think me and Kirk are like not having a good time. I think I'm gonna label this one Joe Fairley versus the Roadrunner. Uh, <laughs> you talk fast, it's okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> not as bad as Coho. Um, Oh, I was ready to go. Now I'm questioning it. Yeah. Um, all right. Kirk, you're starting this one. Okay. Um, this was tough um, at the beginning. Um, again, it was movie of the first date, so I was focusing on the, the date stuff. I was getting more from one person. Um, uh, Spence is coming really strong on the date stuff. Uh, Joe's a little more focused on other things. Joe came in on the date stuff in his closing, mm -hmm. uh, which kind of balanced it out. And the question is, what was the best movie to watch? Um, and Joe talked ultimately, and Spence, I know what you're thinking is... <laughs> get you again but um joe focused on watching the movie where spence was like well you can you don't have to pay attention so i had to because they both gave me good reasons really good reasons why it's a good date movie i went with joe because joe told me about actually watching the movie where spence had other stuff going on oh man i didn't even think about it from that time. <laughs> either <laughs> damn it yeah when joe came in at the end and was basically like 
you could see how a date would react to these types of situations on a first day. It was like, shit, Joe, like, it was, <laughs> that, that, like made me reorganize or like have to like recontextualize the whole thing. Um, I went with Spence. Um, I thought Spence's overall date stuff hit home a lot more in the sense that like watching a fun movie that like again we don't know the other person has seen it but might know the quotes it, it just makes it more for, for an easier get to know you type of date but still has good characters and comedy and everything in it for a light-hearted whereas juno's maybe just a little too intense um I like Juno better than Mean Girls. I'm gonna be honest. I just rewatched Juno and it's great. But uh, this this was tough. That was a really good. Re- this has been a really good debate, guys. Good mm-hmm. shit, uh, Brian. Where are you going? Um, I, like I said, like I said before, a lot of this come down to interpretation of question. Um, and I I completely agree because the the question was uh, what movie do you want to watch on a first date? Not what movie do you want to put on in the background and not watch. So it's a joke. Wow. And that means your winner is Joe Fairley. Wow. Uh, all right, Spence, we're going to start with you. Really, really good match. Uh, damn it. I know. Uh, you, you, you played it really, really well. Um, this was, <laughs> I think, the best of your performances so far. Um, I know you wanted to get to that positive record, but you did really great nonetheless. And this was this was an outstanding performance and a really honestly fantastic match. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm I'm a little upset because like my original pick for Star Trek was Jordan Peele, and I was talked out of it. I think I probably would have won the match then. Um, but no, I I think I did really well. I agree with Joe winning on the arguments that he won on. So I think this is just all like fair. I didn't prepare the best. Not really a lot to say. I like I knew that I could have done better today, but I'm still proud of how I did. Yeah. No, if this was if this was you at like 50%, then if you if you put in the work and get to a hundred, like that's a little scary then because I thought it was a really, really good performance. So congrats on a good uh show today, Spence. We'll see you soon as we bring in the winner, Mr. Fairley. Joe, um, you're now at 500. You're two and two, really impressive match. Uh, how are you feeling? It feels good. Uh, Spence constructed some amazing arguments. I think even going into this, I sort of looking at where this match might go. I had a feeling it was going to go down to the bonus. I sort of looked at what I prepared, knowing what Spence is good at, and I sort of said, I said that I'd probably get the Star Trek and the YA, and they'd probably get the the best picture and the and the prime performance because he picked Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange. It's very hard to argue against. So, sort of going into that, I was sort of prepared for the bonus. It just happened to be one that worked in my favor i saw juno for the first time this year i thought it was one i thought it was an amazing movie um it's gonna be top 10 first time viewings of the year for sure um yeah they constructed their arguments really well and um made me work yeah uh joe like we talked about off screen but i'm gonna share now uh you're you're done for the season but you're gonna be back next year playing in a tournament um the last time you were in a tournament like we talked about you came in at the 16 seed and you, you had to play kirk at the number one seed uh but now uh going into another tournament a few matches under your belt how are you feeling 
feeling good. I know I know the strength of this uh, this division and sort of the and the players within inside inside it. And I think it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be fun because obviously different strengths coming out at different times. Obviously the mixture of that with the fandom and the, and the um, war zone I think is going to be very interesting. Um, just to see what comes up and who picks what. And if I have time when I'm not studying for trivia to watch the other movies. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Joe, we will see you next season uh, with another debate match, but great debate tonight. Let's get final thoughts on this one from Kirk. Uh, yeah, like I said at the beginning, I wanted to see who uh, put the more complete game together, and I think they both did a great job. I think both these players uh, took a step forward. Uh, and what I, you know, what, what I still do tonight compared to what they've done in the past. Um, and I think this bodes well for both of them, even Spence in a loss. Uh, they were both um, very strong. There, there was an argument here where I was like, oh, yeah, this person definitely won and blew him out of the water. Uh, they were all close. Uh, they were all well fought. Um, so I'm excited to go in, uh, in the next season and see what they both do. And Brian, final thoughts from you. Yeah, yeah, just a lot of the same things. I think that uh, some of these were close. I think, uh, like I said, some came down to how you interpret a question. Um, and and then the one, that I think the deciding one that uh, was the only sweep in that was Star Trek, which, like I said, I completely uh, agree with Spence's pick, but it's a matter of who debates are arguing better. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, uh, an incredible match. Uh, the sun has set literally on my evening here at Fan Zone Debate. I'm not sitting in the dark all of a sudden. Uh, this was great. Thank you to Brian and thank you to Kirk for judging this one with me. But thank you to Joe and Spence for playing. Uh, we'll see you guys real soon with the next match. But until then, have a fantastic evening. Bye-bye. There we go. Thank you very much. Please come again. We have a lot more groceries.